speech that God desires the salvation of all men. That he has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right, hey, welcome to Making the Hedge. My name is Josh Gibbs. I'll be your host for tonight. And uh, we've got kind of a roundtable discussion on the King James Version. Uh, we're going to be covering a topic on basically two different areas. Uh, you can look at it from an inspirational or inspiration perspective, uh, or you can look at it from Make sure today that you leave this place. No, nope. you guys. Uh, here with us, a couple that you may recognize uh, before in previous broadcasts we, we've had on the, uh, the show. Uh, Ed from at Sola Scriptura on Twitter. Ed, thanks for being on. Uh, it's good to have you again, man. Thanks for having me, bro. Always good to be here, bud. And down in your bottom left-hand corner, you've got Terry Basham. Uh, you might recognize him from the debate that we did on Limited Atonement a while back. Uh, Terry, welcome back to the show. I'm glad to have you back. Thank you. And for the first time uh, this week, um, Andrew and I have actually talked a little bit on Twitter um, specifically about the King James Version a, a few times, um, but not really anything in depth, I wouldn't say. But uh, Andrew, hey, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on, man. Thank you. Good to be on. So, hey, I think that this is, uh, we, we tried to do this last week, and for those of you who are viewing live, um, or for those of you who, who thought we were going to do it last week, um, I kind of had a <laughs> my two-year-old uh, ended up in the ER, and we, d we weren't able to do it, but um, the guys that are on the show tonight are the same guys that we were planning on having on last week, so I really appreciate them uh, sticking with it and uh, being willing to reschedule. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be a profitable discussion, and especially anytime you're talking about a specific Bible version or, or this topic, um, I, I think that there's a tendency um, that things can get personal. I don't think that anybody in this group is going to, uh, you know, get personal in, in that conversation. But uh, in that sense, is is ad hominem attacks or you know personal things towards the individual that we've got on uh, tonight. But I think there are some things that are it can be some tough. Uh, topics or tough things to and tough questions to answer and that's really what the objective is uh, really tonight is to get into the, the the subject specifically regarding the King James Version on inspiration and preservation I've got a few videos uh, video clips that I'd like to show as well and uh, just kind of talk with you guys about it and get your take but um, I, I think it'll be pretty lighthearted we may we can get as deep as you guys want to um, uh, or stay as, as light as you want to, but um, I, I don't think that we'll have any issue or any problem keeping the conversation going because everyone here tonight is pretty grounded in, in what you believe, uh, from what I can tell, and you're pretty solid on why you believe what you believe. Um, I think everybody has similar views, but different and differing views on the King James Version or even preservation and inspiration. So I really want to break that down first. 
but before we get into the subject, um, I'd like to give you guys just a real brief, an opportunity to give a brief introduction to yourself and, uh, you know, what it is that you do and why this is something that's important to you. So, um, Ed, if you would, I'd like to start with you, man. Sure. Well, I do street evangelism. I was an attorney for 23 years, and about five years ago, uh, my wife had just finished reading through six Bible versions, the last of which was the King James. She felt like there was something different in quality and character about it. I hated the King James. I didn't want nothing to do with it, but she, you know, put me to work studying it. Say what, you know, basically to figure out why there's so many versions. So. I've invested, you know, I'm certainly no expert, but I've invested uh, a lot of effort in the last five years trying to figure out, you know, which Bible and, and why. And it's an absolutely critical issue. I mean, it's God's voice to us, his guaranteed voice to us uh, on this earth. And so between doing street evangelism and studying the Bible version issue, um, I stay pretty busy. I, and honestly, for me personally, you guys, I, I'd like to get your take on it once we get through the introductions, but... Um, I honestly, I can't think of a more important topic as establishing uh, what actually is God's word. What are God's words? Where are they at? Where can we find them? Uh, because I mean, even in John chapter twenty, uh, John says that uh, these are the words of life. That in them you you hope that you I'm, basically you're looking through the words of, the word of God and the words of God uh, that you're placing your your eternal security in those words. So if we don't have the word of God, how can we trust our eternal security? A lot of people like to pit the two against each other. What's more important, salvation or the Word of God? What's more important? So maybe we can talk about that a little bit. But Terry, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. I'm a pastor in Oklahoma, and uh, I've been using the King James Bible my whole life. I've never preached a sermon from anything else. Um, I've given a lot of time to thinking about this topic because I've been on, I've been on all sides my thinking about it and trying to find a position that made that made sense uh, took a while to get get past all the uh, spooky stuff but um I think the King James Bible is an accurate translation of God's word um, I don't know if it's the most accurate but it's an accurate one okay and uh, so I, that's definitely, there's no doubt in my mind that's going to come out. What do you mean by accurate? Is it accurate? Is it perfect? Is it preserved? Is it pure? I mean, how, how far do you take that? I mean, because a lot of King James guys would say, we, what's, what good is an accurate Bible? I mean, if, if you're really putting it up against perfection. So I think maybe that's something that we could get into. But Andrew, tell us a little bit about yourself as well. Um, I'm Andrew Suter. I'm the pastor of Bible Baptist Church here in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, I was not raised King James, uh, and when I was 12, I got my first King James Bible, and um, <clears throat> I started reading it, felt, just, I say feel, just, um, I guess it was a feeling, I just felt something different about it, um, didn't really know why, I just kind of liked it better for whatever reason, and um, then when I uh, got a little bit older, like 14, 15 I actually heard somebody talk about, I started using the King James without even knowing much of the issue. And I got a hold of the issue and uh, progressively got more and more, you know, further to the right of the issue as the years went on. Okay. So, um, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that you would take Ruckman's position on the King James Version. Is that right? I would. Okay. 
Um, and I, I think there's some similarities in, in what we would believe about the King James Version. I, I don't take Ruckman's view on the King James Version. I think that that's some things that we could iron out. Um, and, you know, I think really Ed and I um, have very similar views. I, I honestly haven't found anybody that I've agreed 100% with when it comes to the Bible version issue. Other than, I mean, in, until Ed and I get a little deeper, uh, maybe we'll find something that I disagree with him on. But um, as it is right now, I, I think that he and I have got very, very similar views. Um, so we may piggyback off of each other a little bit, but I know Ed has been a little bit under the weather, so and he's still here tonight. So it's that important to him, uh, and I and you know that means a lot to me for him to come on at, and have this conversation. But I'd like to start with uh, when we're talking about the King James version, you hear this term King James version only quite often, and uh, it's got you know it's got a negative connotation. I mean, before we actually went into the broadcast. Uh, Terry asked us the question, you know, what do you think about the word, uh, what was the word, Terry? It was an F word. Uh, fixation. Fixation. He said, what do you think about that word? Is it, is it have a negative connotation, positive connotation? The first thing that uh, Ed, Ed responded, he said, it's negative. It's got a negative connotation, fixation. And when you hear the King James Version only, uh, a lot of people will associate it with James White's book, King James Only Controversy. And uh, that's something that I want to address, the five categories that he actually uses to um, categorize King James Version only uh, people. Um, and, and, but I want to get your take. Andrew, what do you mean when you say King James Version only? Um, when I say King James only, I, I'll use, I use a bunch of different translations. You know, I have many of them in my house. Um, of course, the reason why I use other translations is very different from why other people use them. Um, so I, I use a bunch of different translations to expose and uh, try to show people why they're wrong. But when I say King James only, um, I only believe that the King James Bible is the perfect, preserved, inerrant, inspired Word of God for the world today. Okay. Um, there's a lot of things I'd like, I think, that we can break down. And get into that, but I'd like to get Terry. What's your take? Are you King James only? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I, no. Is that it? No, not King James. <laughs> <laughs> See, um, I I wouldn't label myself King James only either. Uh, in the sense that, because you know, I think that we've got to define the term. I think that when 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 you're labeled King James Version only, uh, you can be put into a certain category or group or, my, uh, you know, I, there's different associations with that term. So I think we can kind of iron that out a little bit. And uh, I think that we will. But, Ed, are you King James only? And uh, can you explain that a little bit? I would say the only Bible that I would read now is the King James. But it's based it's because of where it comes from. It's because of the manuscripts that underpin it. You know, I mean... The Lord preserves his word from this generation forever. So I think the Geneva Bible before the King James was the word of God. I think throughout um, history, you know, the Byzantine slash majority slash traditional text has been the word of God. And it just so happens that the King James version is an outstanding translation. I think the translators were brilliant enough to study, you know, basically the CVs I've read of, of every single one of them. Um, and they made some particularly brilliant translation decisions in a couple of places. And there really is no other majority text Bible 
in the English language, it's legitimate. And so for that reason, the only Bible that I trust and read is the King James. I would agree with that 100%. Here's, what I, here's why I would say that I do agree with that. Um, I, I want to look at those five categories. So James White has, has a, I think his book was written like 25 years ago. I, I think there's two editions, maybe three editions, I don't know. Uh, but if I was going to find somebody who is an apologist or someone who really has is at the forefront or has been at the forefront, particularly today against the King James Version advocates even, not e I'm not even just talking King James only, like he's against the King James Version. I, I, I don't think there's any doubt about it. I think that he, he would say that he likes the King James, it's a good version, but I, I don't see him attacking any other version any more than he, than he does a King James Version. But here's the categories that he breaks a King James Version only into. The first is, uh, this would be you know a typical grandma um, argument that the King James, I like the King James the best. This is, this is uh, a lot of people who would take this position. It's, I like the King James, it's the best, uh, or it's the best version for me. Uh, then you've got the textual argument. The textual argument would be, um, you're basically looking at a family of manuscripts. You're comparing the King James Version uh, that it, it was translated from in that textual family compared to other versions in the text that they came from. Uh, the third would be the received text only. So some people would say, I'm TR only. Uh, we know, and Ed just laid out, that the TR came from the Byzantine text, which uh, came from, well, it's, it's contained within the majority text, but it's, it's kind of separate from the majority text. Uh, in, in that sense. But then you've got the fourth group, which would be the inspired KJV group, uh, which means that the King James Version is not just a preservation of the Word of God from the original languages. Um, and I'm not talking about an original handwritten autograph, uh, but you know what I mean. It's, it's, the, 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 it's the preserved original languages, not in the sense that it's the original autograph, but it's copies of copies of copies of the original that God has preserved throughout history but not only that, not just preservation. This is a this is the group that I think Andrew, you might you might agree with this. You would say that the King James, and correct me if I'm wrong, you would say that the King James version is actually a, a re-inspired or inspired text as opposed to preserved. Could you elaborate on that for a little bit? Yeah, I think that the King James Bible is you know inspired, re-inspired, whatever you want to you know call it. A lot of people brand us with what what they call double inspiration. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Um, I do think the King James Bible is not only preserved, but it's also inspired. I think that preservation and inspiration are Siamese twins conjoined at the heart. If you separate them, they both die. I don't think you can have one without the other. Okay. Um, and then the fifth group that we've got, uh, this would be, and, and I think that you could probably categorize some of these together. The fifth group is actually the King James Version is a new revelation. So, uh, Ruckman would actually take the position that uh, the King James Version actually corrects the Greek, it corrects the Hebrew, it corrects the Aramaic uh, that it actually that it was translated from. So yeah, yeah. not only is it re-inspired or an inspired text, if you don't want to call it re-inspired, but it's better than the text that it came from. Andrew, I think you wanted to say something on that. Yeah, I would fall into that category. As, so number five is where I would fall. Okay. Um, I guess number four and five kind of go hand in hand. But just for clarification, because this often gets thrown around, Ruckman nor myself nor anybody that I know thinks that the King James Bible corrects any original autographs. We do not think that the King James is 
um, has new information or is somehow um, better in, in text than, than the originals. So, okay, so when you say the originals, you're talking about the original autograph. The original autographs. And we don't have those. They don't exist. So you can't actually compare them. So, but, but I guess that, see, that's interesting to me because that makes me think that the copies of the originals are not equal to the originals. Is that what you're saying? Well, I guess it falls down to if we're talking about the Texas Receptus. No, I'm just talking about even before the Texas Receptus. So that's, it, it, that's, that's why it kind of intrigues me to hear you say that. Because if, if the copy of the original isn't equal to the original handwritten manuscript that Paul penned, then how can we say that any version or translation or copy of that copy has actually preserves the doctrine of preservation itself? How can we say that what we've got today is actually what Paul wrote in English? Well, you'd have to ask yourself which copy is a perfect copy of what Paul wrote. Well, I would, I would see, and that's where we would get into the textual family side of it, because I would say that within the doctrine of preservation, God tells us that in Matthew twenty four thirty that His word won't pass away; um, mm -hmm. it'll it'll be here forever from this generation on forever, not one jot, not one tittle. Um, so w when I consider that, I, I I see a huge gap between the original autograph that we don't have and the King James in sixteen eleven, and I say, well, what about that gap between? If those copies don't matter between until sixteen eleven, then where was the Bible? Obviously, you've got that question: where was the Bible between then and where? I guess my, it comes down to me, where's the doctrine of preservation within the re-inspired King James Version text of 1611? Where's, where's the doctrine of preservation there? So, there's always been a Bible, but what people fail to realize is if we're going to say it's the Greek Bible, the Texas Receptus, number one, we have to ask the question, which one? There were over 13 editions of the TR in 1611, well, 1604, when they started the translation work of the King James. Not only that, but when you have, you know, when you talk about the Greek Bible or the Greek text, people don't realize there was never a Greek New Testament compiled until 1516. Where was the Word of God then before 1516, when Erasmus compiled the Greek New Testament? So the Word of God has existed in various manuscripts, you know, here, there, and everywhere. It's not been lost. But if we're talking about a, a compiled text that is perfect and inerrant and you know preserved, and I would say inspired, then I can lay my authority on the King James. Because if we're going to talk about the TR, which, which edition of the TR do you guys use? Well, we're not talking about the TR, but um, I, I think we're talking about even before the TR. But how, Terry and Ed, do you guys have anything that you want to... Uh, I mean, feel free to chime in anytime you want. I mean, um. I would just say, you know, my only thought, you know, when I look at what happened to the Bible after the apostles, you know, and I look at some of these, like the Donatists and the Novations and the Waldenses and the Vaudois and the Valenses and how they had, some of them had little tiny pieces of scripture. And you know, they would memorize, because they were being killed by Rome, they would memorize whole chapters, whole books, and some of them the whole New Testament and would try 
to translate them into the languages of the places where they went as missionaries. And so, you know, the Lord has handled scripture and pieces of scripture in different ways in different times, but he's always preserved it. But he's allowed, you know, it to develop to the point where it was in 1611, but it was preserved the entire time, but just his way, you know. Um, and it's just, it's really intriguing to read the stories about how the scriptures were carried, you know, to Ethiopia, to Armenia, you know, to the Parthian Empire, which is, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan and, you know, all spread all over Europe in, in sort of bit and pieces form. But the Lord did preserve it, you know. The, and, and to kind of piggyback off of that a bit, um, I, I think it's important to, to even consider the fact that the King James Version is what we would call an eclectic text. So it's it's not it doesn't come from any one manuscript. It doesn't come from just one set of manuscripts. They they considered what we would call both internal and external uh, sources or uh, witnesses, if that's what you want to call it. Um, the internal witnesses and the external witnesses would 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 both um, would both consider not only the textual side of it, the manuscript side of it, but they also looked at lectionaries. They looked at the the writings of the early church fathers. They looked at basically what what was used throughout history and uh, I, I think that it's 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 really important to see that when we're talking about preservation and, and we look at what we would call a textual variant um, a, a, this is where I think the conversation is going um, on the King James side if 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 you really want to be an advocate for the King James version um, we've got to have we've got to be able to have an answer for for textual variancy so when we look at um, passages like Revelation 16.5. In other versions, it would say King of Saints. And, and it, well, in the King James Version, it says King of Saints. And then in other, other versions, it would say King of Nations. So you've got a variant there. Is it nations? Is it saints? Um, what, what is it? What has it been throughout history? I think that we can look uh, to all these different witnesses and, and see, uh, you know, is the King James Version actually correct or or uh, is, is another version correct in, in, consider, in, in their usage of the word nation versus saints? Terry actually wrote on his blog earlier, and uh, for whatever reason, his video is frozen again on the live stream. But um, maybe, maybe you guys viewing live don't see what I do on my computer. Maybe there's a lag. But Terry in his blog earlier um, actually uh, had written about the difference of the usage between love and charity. I think it's 1 Corinthians 13 where it says if you have not charity um, and the difference between if you have not love. Um, so I, I think, Terry, is there anything that you could expand on that? I haven't heard you say a whole lot, but um, maybe that's something that you could, because I think in your blog you ended it by saying, does it matter? And then you, you said, no, it doesn't. It's if, it's if it's charity or love, it doesn't matter. So that would be my question to you. Does it really matter if it's if it's charity or love? And then Andrew or Ed, if we could get your take on it, does it really matter? Yeah, I said it doesn't matter because um, when you look at, if you look at Wick, Wycliffe was the first guy to use charity in English, and then Tyndale used love, um, Coverdale was love, the Geneva Bible love, Bishop's Bible uh, love, authorized version charity, revised version back to love. It, di it didn't make a difference. Um, charity or love, doesn't, it, does, it doesn't matter which one. Because 1 Corinthians 13 is, is a description of agape, of love. We know it as love. And obviously, very smart people, Tyndale and Wycliffe and those guys, they said love too. And in the authorized version, you have um, 
charity, which is, is a good word, I guess, but um, it doesn't matter either one because either way you're going to read charity in the, in the authorized version and you're going to explain it as love as the high and probably you're going to say explain it as the highest kind of love uh but it's still love so i don't think it really matters i think a lot of the textual variations in my opinion do not do not matter that much um and i don't think the difference between the king james bible and the other versions is significant enough to go to war over it that's that's what I don't that's what I don't like. If you're if you're a King James person, that's cool. And if you're not, that's also cool. Whatever whatever your conscience lets you do, because you're going to come out at the same place. You're going to come out at the same place. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's a big deal. Um, I think that that's definitely there's a there's a lot there is a lot in there that we can get into. So let's let's I want to I want to flush this out a little bit when we're where we're talking about the textual variancy and specifically love versus charity. And then I want to talk a little bit about why textual variancy is important and some of the major textual variants that uh, we should consider uh, that the King James Version preserves versus other versions that do not preserve a, a specific text. And uh, really what the argument, what the heart of the argument is. But Andrew or Ed, if you would like to, is there anything, do you think it matters? I mean, love versus charity in 1 Corinthians 13. Is there a difference? Uh, should we should we recognize or go to war um, for love versus charity? Um, I mean, <clears throat> what we're essentially saying is, is if that doesn't matter, what else doesn't matter? That's a slippery slope. If... The promise of Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5 is every word of God is pure. Then we have to ask ourselves, does it matter what the Bible says or what the Bible doesn't say? What's to say that I can't start changing words that I think are pretty well interchangeable? That's We are literally opening the door to where we think that we're putting ourselves in the place of authority on the Bible. We're no, the Bible's no longer our final authority, but now our brain or our thinking or our feeling is. And so when you look at charity and you look at love, I mean, I won't take a bunch of time to do it. A simple dictionary, you can just open them up and see that they're different. Are they similar? Yes. But are they different? Uh, yes. They're both different, but yet they're similar. They're, sim they're um, uh, what are you, synonyms. There we go. They're synonyms, but they are different words. And so when you get down to it, you have to ask yourself, you know, the whole agape phileo argument, which, you know, doesn't really add up. You know, people say agape is the godly blah, 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 love. Well, several times agape is used in a place where you wouldn't call it godly love. It's just not translated that way at all. Sam Gipp does a wonderful job exposing the whole agape phileo, you know, smokescreen. So I think it does matter. I think that if you take that liberty, although although this may seem minute to some, you take that liberty, what's to say you can't take other liberties? Ed, do you have anything on that? Love versus charity? You know, just in general, I consider the King James perfect in substance, but not necessarily in form. Like I think of the word astonied. Like aston it means astonished. What is astonied, the perfect word from God? Or would it matter if it happened to be astonished? So with charity and love, um, I, the thing about the King James is I trust the translators because I've studied their CVs, I've studied their histories, their academic credentials, and I trust them to make a better decision than me and really absolutely a better decision than Westcott and Hort 
Um, but I don't think it's, you know, a hill to die on, but I would always err on the work that the King James committee did because they were brilliant men. And for Terry, I mean, it, I struggle when people say that there's really not much textual difference between the King James and the other versions. Cause I, I thought that, but there are colossal, uh, differences. And that's a, that's a huge thing to go through right now. But I mean, if I, when I saw first saw the differences in the text between my NIV and, uh, the King James, I mean, I was stunned by, you know, repentance, the blood of Christ that, you know, slanders Jesus in a couple of places. Um, the deity of Christ. I mean, there's just doctrine after doctrine after doctrine after doctrine is subtly changed. I mean, that's what Satan does is he, he plays it brilliantly. He doesn't change everything, but he changes it in just enough places to cause doubt. That's, I mean, that's a whole different rabbit hole, but I thought I'd at least address it briefly. Yeah. You know what? I actually, I, I'm going to find something that I disagree with you on it at some point. <laughs> but I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. I, and when it comes to the textual variancy uh, issue, I think that it is extremely important. It's extremely important. Um, when we, and specifically with even considering Revelation 16.5, I don't know if you guys have ever considered that particular verse as one of the major textual variants to consider. But, you know, Andrew, Andrew said this. He said, if you start there and, and you make a uh, compromise or you, you make a substitution for love versus charity, where does it end? What's your final authority? on uh, what is what is the authority on the Word of God. For me, that's what the argument really boils down to, is the issue of canon. Um, when, when we look at the difference in textual variance, or conjectural emendation, or uh, the, di the different text families, really what it comes down to is the issue of what is canon. So let me, let me, let me break that down a little bit further. Um, Terry, you said that I really don't think that there is uh, a major concern with the textual variants in other versions, and, and I would disagree with that wholeheartedly, uh, 100%. I think you and I have had this conversation real uh, briefly uh, in the past, but uh, for instance, you've got three main stories that are what we would call a textual variant in, in the New Testament alone. You've got, uh, you've got the Yonin comma in 1 John 5, 7, which is the greatest verse in the entire Bible that it contains the Trinity. Um, then you've got the Pericope Adulterae in uh, Luke 7:53 uh, through 8:11, which is the woman caught in adultery. Uh, and then you've got the last 16 verses of Mark 16, which contain the resurrection of Christ, and then the uh, the Great Commission to go into all the world and present the gospel to everyone, um, and every creature, and in every tribe, and every kindred, all of those things. So I, I think that those, just considering those those things alone, you've got. You've got the resur resurrection of Christ, you've got the gospel, you've got the Great Commission, you've got a woman at the well who is a Gentile that gets saved and asks how to get eternal life, she gets eternal life, and uh, then you've got uh, the Trinity. So there's three main, there's, there's, there's a lot of doctrine just in those three main passages there that if you really break it down and you look at uh, the text that these new, that new, that what we, I would call the critical Greek text, uh, or a critical text um, version or translation, um, and, and the main difference is, is those Bibles don't say that those are canon. They say they shouldn't be in the Bible, and that's the real issue of uh, what we would call a textual variant is, is this actually the Bible? Um, and I've even heard pastors say that I will not preach a sermon on the woman caught in adultery. I will not preach a sermon from 1 John 5-7. I will not preach 
any sermon from any of the last 16 verses in Mark 16 because the earliest manuscripts that we have don't contain them. Um, but even, even considering that, when we look at just the manuscript evidence alone in Revelation 16.5, it has always been argued that the King James translators made an error there by translating it saints versus nations uh, because there's no manuscript evidence to support it. But what's, what's really unique and interesting to consider, and I know that you, Terry, you actually talked to Jeff Riddle last week, and I'm hoping to get him on the show because he does an excellent, excellent job of discussing Revelation 16.5 um, and how the King James translators got it right. Um, uh, and he even, he actually did a, the translating himself from Latin, quoting Beza, where Beza said that he got an old, ancient manuscript that is very reliable that contained those exact words. Uh, when the critical Greek text, uh, or the critical scholars, um, who look at these variants and say, uh, what they're really saying is, um, he didn't have that manuscript, he didn't have anything to justify the way it was translated, but then you've got Beza himself, who actually put it into the TR that said it should be there, and, and the King James actually came from the TR. Um, so that's important to me. I don't know, uh, Terry, what your response would be uh, to, to, to just those three, just those three stories um, that I listed there. Do you think that we should have uh, the woman caught in adultery in the Bible? Do you think 1 John 5, 7 should be there? Do you think Mark 16, uh, the last 16 verses, should be in the Bible? Are they actually uh, what God said, what God spoke, what God inspired? Uh, well, first of all, I don't I don't think it matters if they are there or not there, because if what you're saying is true, if it's that detrimental to doctrine, then everybody who uses a Bible that doesn't have um, 1 John 5, 7 or the long reading of Mark would have some doctrinal error controls their 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 teaching i don't know anybody personally i'm saying i say anybody i don't know everybody but they're if mainstream evangelicals are trinitarian and they use the bible doesn't have first john 5 7 so i don't see that that's really a uh, it leads you down the primrose path to heresy i don't see how not having the uh, sort of the woman taking adultery is going to affect your doctrines either because you're only going to give a sermon from that probably, I don't know, if you're a pastor, maybe once or twice in passing. It's not a it's not a passage you draw deep doctrinal truths from, nor is the long reading of, long ending of Mark. Um, because you have the commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel in all the other places, in Acts and Matthew, Luke, and then Paul's example in the book of Acts. So I don't I don't see that it's that critical. That's what I'm saying. I don't see it's that critical. If, if everybody who used the modern version all of a sudden said, there ain't no Trinity, there ain't no Great Commission, and Gentiles can be born again, or, or but, but the, the adultery fricope, that woman's not a Gentile. I thought, I thought you said that. She's, a, she's probably, she's a Jew. But I don't see the, um, the doctrinal importance of it. If it's a slippery slope argument, slippery slope, slope arguments are, are not good arguments because... You apply that to any to anything, and, and you you won't be doing anything. You'll be sitting at home um, in a concrete bunker before you're it's all over with. And I don't know what you mean by Revelation sixteen uh, six sixteen five. Well, sixteen five in the King James version doesn't say anything about saints or nations at all. It's verse six. 
It says they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets. 16.6. Unless you're meaning something else. But I looked I looked at my NASB here, and it says uh, saints too. So I don't, I don't know what the... Uh, I don't know what the hullabaloo is about that. I'm not a Greek scholar, um, so. Hey, can I make a comment about First John five seven real quick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ed, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I, I, I want to say think, this. I'm uh, real quick. I'm sorry. Um, you're yeah. right, Terry. Uh, this it's not about King of the Saints. There, it's it's about uh, the Lord, which it says, "Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art, which wast, and which shall be." So the textual variant in that verse is uh, "shall be." It's the future tense. Um, so it's, it's, uh, is, do, do the manuscripts actually support that, um, uh, the future tense of, of the Lord there? So that would be one, what minor textual variant, it's one word, uh, or two words if you want to consider it that way. But anyways, Ed, go ahead, man. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Sorry about that. You know, I think the, the problem with first John five, seven, not being in the new versions is when I, I deal with Jehovah witnesses a lot on the street and. You know, the deity of Christ is deleted out of the new version in a couple of places. Um, 1 Timothy 3.16 and Revelation 1.6. And the Trinity, you know, obviously you can still make an argument for it with other verses, but that's the most clear. And so it just makes it more difficult to deal with cults. I mean, it probably is not going to affect a Bible-believing Christian, whether it's there or not. But it's just the repetition. I mean, there's tons of other doctrinal concepts that are deleted out of the new versions. But 1 John 5.7, I've had trouble... Um, trying to prove the Trinity to uh, Jehovah Witnesses, you really can't do it without it. I mean, it's still a lot more difficult. So, and the issue for me personally, and then um, Andrew, I want to get your take on it. The issue for me personally, when it comes to even First John five seven or any of these, any major or minor texture variants that we're talking about, does it really matter? Uh, the no one doctrine hin uh, hinges on any one verse or one passage. You get those kind of arguments, right? Well, it's 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 it it it's throughout the entire Bible. Uh, this doctrine, you know, you don't have to have First John five seven to have the Trinity. Okay, well, uh, that maybe you can find the Trinity. There's no doubt the Trinity d is not hinged on First John five seven. If it wasn't there, you wouldn't have the Trinity. There's no doubt about that. The question, though, is not do you lose doctrine, uh, or is this doctrine uh, somehow not preserved, or can you not get the doctrine in the Trinity if First John five seven wasn't there? To me, the issue is and has always been, is that what God spoke? Is that what was inspired? Is that what God said he would preserve? Is that what John wrote? So to me, that's what the issue is. What is the word of God? Do we have it? And where can I find it? That's what I want to know. So that's that's what it boils down to for me. Not, not is it something that we can prove from other verses, but what is the actual Bible? What can I set my hat on and say, this is it. It's settled. It's not transitional. It's not evolutionary. It's not going to change tomorrow um, based off of any new manuscripts that they find. But this is it. This is what God wrote. So, Andrew, I probably spoke a little bit too much there. Um, what did you have to say on that? Well, I mean, when it comes down to it, you know, this, he said the slippery slope argument's a, a, a bad argument. But my thing is, why? Why is it a bad argument? If we're just, if we are saying that the only thing we need to worry about is making sure that every doctrine we believe is kept intact just one time in the Bible, then what's to say I just can't go through and start slashing out verses that speak of doctrinal things as long as I can find that doctrine somewhere else? I mean, how many times does it have to be mentioned in the Bible in order for us to, to believe it? 
I mean, are we going to say that, okay, well, that's in there one time. We Let's just cut out everything about this particular subject. As long as it's in there one time, it's okay. That's essentially the argument that's coming from Terry. As long as it's in there in other places, it's fine. Where do we draw the line there? When it comes to First John 5, 7, you know, it's being mentioned that, well, people believe in the Trinity without 1 John 5, 7, being in these modern translations. Okay, but everybody who is using these modern translations almost exclusively has been taught the Trinity. And I'm making a general statement. This is not a in every case statement. But have been taught the Trinity out of a King James Bible. I mean, why are there so many... Christians, mainline Christians that believe in the Trinity, because for 350 years, basically, the King James Bible had the preeminence, and the King James Bible contained the most clear presentation of the Trinity. These three are one, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three, or the Holy Ghost, excuse me, and these three are one. Now, we've only seen this modern-day version thing really take, you know, really go out since the NIV, in my opinion. So we're talking about, what, 40 years? I guess Terry left. Uh, so Terry um, Terry did leave. His feed was frozen. We're going to try to get him back real quick. Let me, uh, um, Andrew, if you want to expand on that, you feel welcome to do that. I don't know what the deal was, um, but... Okay, I thought I was being nice. I, no, you're doing good, man. Okay, I, I try to play nice usually. Um, but we've only seen 40 years of the biggest verse of the Trinity being left out of the Bible. If the Lord tarries, I hope he doesn't, but if the Lord tarries, what's it going to be like in 100 years with cults like the Oneness Pentecostals and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons? In in a hundred years, and especially since now we've got Baptist preachers that are using these modern translations, what's going to happen to the doctrine of the Trinity? I don't think we have seen the full effect or the full fruit of the doctrinal implications that these versions have. I don't think it's been enough time yet. So that's my take on it. Yeah. Ed, do you have anything you want to expand on that? Yeah, I mean, there's there really there's so many doctrines changed, and you know, I just was looking at a couple of verses today where Jesus's character is slandered. I mean, in John seven eight through ten, Jesus lies. In Matthew five twenty two, um, Jesus gets angry at his brother. You know, it says if you're he's worthy of hell because it says in the new versions, anyone who's angry with his brother is worthy of hell. But in the King James, it says whoever's angry at his brother without a cause. So when Jesus was angry with Peter, he had a cause. But you don't see that in the new version, so it looks like Jesus is, is worthy of hell. You know, if you put two and two together, and then there's another verse, I think it's uh, Luke 9, 56, where the part where Jesus says he didn't come to destroy the world, but to save it is just deleted out of there. Um, and there's a couple places in the NIV specifically where his compassion is the word compassion. Jesus had compassion on the people. In the hard copy of the uh, 84 NIV, it's deleted out four times. And I mean, you know, like I mentioned earlier, repentance is deleted out in select places. The blood is deleted out in select places. The deity of Christ is deleted out in select places. Catholic doctrine is woven in in a couple of key places. I mean, it's you can't really make an educated argument that, that significant doctrine hasn't changed. And I wouldn't have believed it until I saw it with my own eyes. I thought the whole King James thing was ridiculous. Then I studied it and realized 
actually saving us pretty billion. Yeah. Um, so, guys, I want to give you a quick update. We're waiting for Terry to come back on. I, I, he might be having a, some bandwidth issues. I'm not 100% sure what is going on there with that. Uh, but here's kind of what I want to get into with the, the rest of the time that we've got left. I don't know how much time you guys want to spend on this. Terry is back. Welcome back. I'm going to get you back on the live feed so you can join everyone else as well. Whatever Andrew said, I disagree. <laughs> I said I believe Calvinism. <laughs> you disagree with that, Terry? That's messed up, man. Glad to see you converted, Terry. That was pretty witty. Andrew, coming in quick. So, all right. Hey, Terry, I'm not 100% sure how much you heard of that, uh, but Ed Ed did list a few verses. This is, I, I would like to get into, you know, you said that you don't believe that there's there's doctrine that's actually changed in the new verses, um, that there are minor changes, that, that the general... Um, that you just basically, I would say your your position is that you can use another version, get all the same doctrine. I would agree that you can get all the same doctrine from any other version. There's no doubt. I would agree that you can get saved from any other version. There's no doubt about that to me. Um, I, I would say that if if you were looking at certain passages, that there are definitely, without a doubt, doctrinal issues, doctrinal changes. I want to look at that. Uh, but before we do, you kind of heard some of our responses to 1 John 5, 7 and the arguments against textual variancy. Uh, do you want to have a response to that before we move on to the next uh, area that we're going to talk about in the conversation? Uh, mostly I heard Ed talk about the Jehovah's Witness thing. And I've talked to lots of Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, it's going to take more than one verse to change a Jehovah's Witness's mind about anything. Because I've read to him from the Greek New Testament, uh, John 1 1 and they and they don't get it they say no that's wrong that's wrong it's inconsistent it takes much more than just a lot of proof texting because they are um I work with some Jehovah's Witnesses and they are rock-ribbed militant it it takes it takes illumination from the Holy Spirit a revelation for them to see their error embrace the true and living God not one one verse isn't going to make or break the deal uh, so I don't think that that's uh, that is that is essential um and I didn't hear the things. I didn't hear the things that uh, Andrew said, but the slippery slope argument. When your argument is, I can't, I can't make a change here, because next thing you know, I'll be changing everything. It it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't um, um it's a fear based argument. Uh, it's like for instance, when my, <laughs> I grew up in the independent fundamental world, and. Uh, I had a, a preacher friend tell me that if you're, uh, you, there's no, here's what he said. There's no telling what a woman will do once she puts on a pair of pants. And I was like, he said, cause you don't know where, where it's going to stop. What's next? She put on pants and she's going to be sleeping around. I mean, that was a slippery slope argument. It's not a good, it's not a good argument. It's not a good argument, especially when you get back. If you look at the King James Bible itself, you can see how the King James translators I mean, they they change stuff all the time. Um, they were supposed to stick with the Bishop's Bible as a base, and they they made all kinds of adjustments. Um, and we're doing we do the same thing today. I'm sure when Andrew gives a sermon, he reads the passage from the from the New Testament or the Old, and sometimes he'll restate it for clarification. Um, that's changing God's word. I mean, that's changing us the slant on us using different words. So I don't think that's really. Um, I think about what I said. I don't think it's that great of an argument. It's not convincing. 
Hey, Andrew, I want to give you a chance to respond. And then, Terry, I want to ask you a question about the King James Version and your use of it. Andrew, I want to give you a chance to respond real quick. So if you would like to, to have at it. Yeah, I, I don't know how much you heard as far as my response prior to. I do want to say this about the, you know, if we cut, if, as long as a doctrine is in there one time, then it's fine. That's the logic that I'm getting. If that's not the logic that, that he's trying to say, then maybe there needs to be further clarification. Because if we say, well, no doctrine's affected if I cut these verses out. Okay, well, then what's to say I can't cut out more verses as long as there's still a verse in there that keeps the doctrine? And as far as the Word of God, you know, he said that it takes more than just a verse to, to convince a you know, Jehovah's Witness about the Trinity, it takes illumination by the Holy Spirit. Well, how in the world does the Holy Spirit illuminate hearts? It is 100% totally through the Word of God. The Word of God is what illuminates. The Bible says in Psalms 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, enlightening the eyes. Jesus said in John 60, 63, my words, they are spirit and they are life. You know, even the old song, Years I spent in vanity and pride at Calvary. The second, the second verse says, um, um, "By God's word, at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned." The Bible is literally what opens the heart and the eyes and the minds of unbelievers. So if you're using a Bible that doesn't have First John five seven in it, that may be the verse that convinces them of the Trinity, because the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God. And if you're taking away from the Word of God, you are taking away from the literal power of the Holy Spirit. So, I just can I can I, can I respond to that? Yeah, you got it, man. The question. So, Andrew, do you hand out or believe in handing out John and Romans? Yeah. Okay, so you just you just decided that the people in your neighborhood or whoever you're handing them out to that they don't need. 64 books of the Bible. You said these are the only two you need. So that, I mean, that, where's that going to stop? Or are you going to cut it down to just the first chapter of John? That's the slippery slope argument. Is you're handing out portions, not the whole of God's word, not the whole of scripture, not the um, first John 5, 7 and all that stuff. You're giving them just, what is it, 39 chapters of the Bible and there's 1186. I mean, come on. See what I'm Wait. saying? That's how that argument goes. No, it's comparing apples and oranges, because if I'm passing out John and Romans on the streets, I'm being evangelistic. I'm not trying to convince anybody of the Trinity. If I'm trying to convince people that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that they need, they need to be saved, I'm going to give them the gospel. I'm not going to go through a doctrinal dissertation of the Trinity. If I'm trying to convince somebody of the Trinity, I'm going to show them 1 John 5, 7. Hey, um, so here, I want to I want to move the conversation a little bit. Terry, let me ask you this question. You and I had kind of talked about this a little bit over the phone a while back, uh, and I wanted to elaborate a little bit because I'm not sure I understand your position 100%. You, you, said that you said earlier in the broadcast that you grew up on the King James Version. That's the version that you've always used. Uh, you've told me personally that you use and read from a, a Schofield reference Bible, um, and you preach from it in the pulpit. So um, one, thing, one thing that I really thought about and, and it really, I wanted to ask you this question. I haven't had a chance to. I, I think that it's appropriate to ask in, in this live stream because I don't think it's too personal. Uh, but in one of your blog posts, you, you wrote about, um, who was it that you were watching preach? Um, oh, you mean the article you, re the article you reviewed? Yes. 
Yeah, it was Steve Lawson. Steve Lawson. So you're watching Steve Lawson preach, and uh, you were sitting so close to him that you saw uh, the, the binding on his Bible and the, the four little letters that you read was NASB. You asked yourself, man, I, this guy's preaching is just off the hook. That wasn't your exact words, but you loved it. It was He was doing a great job preaching. And you asked yourself, you said, man, but he's got the wrong Bible. Could I really ask him to stand up in my pulpit and uh, preach in my church? And, and you said the answer is no. So I, out, out of everything that I've heard you saying tonight, um, it sounds like you're fine with other, you're fine with other versions. Um, you're, you're fine with studying other versions. I'm fine with studying other versions. I think that everybody should. Um, but when it comes to your pulpit and your church, and just tell me if I'm getting too personal, but I would like to understand this. Would you preach from an NASB in your church? Uh, or would you let Steve Lawson preach behind your pulpit in your church? And why or why not? Yeah, that, that's the very, I don't know if you really understood the article. Listen to your review. And then I didn't think you understood it then. And I don't think you understand it now. What I was saying is that as a King James onlyist person, you know, in a church that only uses that particular translation, it comes from that King James only tradition. When you're listening to someone preach and they're preaching exactly what you believe, when they're when they're when they're expositing the scriptures, exp expounding whatever you want to call it, and it's coming to the exact same conclusions that you come up with. Does it really matter what translation they're using? If they're coming to the same conclusion, that was the whole gist of that article. Isn't it's a plea for sanity, I guess, amongst the uh, King James King James people? Don't crucify people over the translation they use. That is not the litmus test of true doctrine. What translate? I mean, if like if you said. Um, um, I get I get this here at our church. People come and visit because we use the King James Bible. It's our official translation in the church. Can and, I ask uh, you why? Why that was that's what it's always been. Um, why haven't you for, changed it though? Because I, th I think it's I think I think the King James Bible is good enough. Okay. And I don't you know, and I'm the pastor of a church. I'm not the god of a church. I mean, the congregation makes its own decisions. I mean, we we that's what we've been using for a long time. But would you would you switch to an NASB or would you preach from an NASB on a Sunday, even though the King James is your stance? Would I switch? You know, I, I don't know. That's a good question. Would you I let Steve Lawson preach it behind your pulpit? I wish I wish I, I wish he could. I wish he could. Do your people know that you no longer hold of the King James Bible exclusively? Well, I've never changed. My position has been the same all the way along, so I don't. Well, I, okay, so I don't really want to go, I, I didn't want to go that far, um, but I, I did want to ask that question because that's something that I was, that's something that I, you know, I, I wanted to know the answer because we've had personal conversations about it, um, and, and maybe that is too far, I don't know, Terry, you can you can let us know, I know, you, I mean, you don't have a problem uh, taking a stance for what you believe, so just. Because I've had, I've had people come and preach at the church before who are not King James only. And I ask them to use the authorized version when they're there, and they and they do. It's just not a problem. And, the, and you did put that in your blog post that you thought to yourself, "Well, I would have to ask him to use the King James version," but you didn't want to have to ask him that, and that really yeah. got you it got you to question, like, it, "Is right. this something it's, that I should consider?" Yeah, it does. It does, it's 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 illogical to me that if we believe the same thing, the same doctrines, the same gospel. We believe the same thing. 
it, it shouldn't matter what translation of the Bible that a guy uses. Okay. Um, so if I came if I came to your church, you don't have a church, but if you are pastoring a church, and uh, you use the New American Standard, and you invited me to come and preach, and you said, Terry, uh, I want you to use the uh, New American Standard while you're there, I would say, look, I am what I am. If you don't want me to come, don't ask don't 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 ask me to come. I don't know if okay. I would give. I don't think I would change for somebody, and I don't think it should be a question that's a demand that's made of somebody. Um, <clears throat> so that's that's my, my thinking about that. I want I want I want King James people to be devoted to the King James version. I have no problem with that. And uh, but I don't I don't think we should anathematize people who do not use the King James version. Uh, and that's, let me clarify: I go to a church that is not a King James church. Uh, the the pastor that um, the pastor of the church that I go to uses a. A lot of different versions. I learned from him. I've probably, I've had probably the greatest period of spiritual growth in my own personal life uh, because it's very practical, and and I think that's been good for me. It's been good for my family. So that's I definitely don't anathematize anybody who doesn't use the King James version. What I'm saying is, you can be a Christian and use a different version. Um, what I have come to the conclusion in my own personal walk with the Lord and my own personal study is that there is a difference between the King James Version and an NASB or an NIV or even a New King James. Um, there's definitely there there's definitely some differences. I want to get into those, uh, but before I do, Ed, you've you've been you haven't said a whole lot lately, so I wanted to ask you before we move on to I want to show a little video and uh, kind of get Andrew's take on this and uh, kind of open the dialogue from here regarding inspiration and uh, where the Bible's been throughout history up to 1611. But Ed, do you have anything that you wanted to chime in on this before we before we get there? I mean, other than when you study the history of where the new versions came from, when you go trace it back to origin and you go through Eusebius and you, you go through Rome and you know, then you look at Westcott and Hort, I mean, it's clearly the plan of Satan to, to make a counterfeit scripture. I mean, and then the manuscript evidence is, is weak, 45 you know, manuscripts and really two that matter. And then you see the substantive changes. I mean, the outrageous doctrine of deletions. It's. I mean, I couldn't sit in a church where they preach from the new versions. I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't. You know, shout down anybody who's preached from a new version. But I personally would have a hard time respecting someone who calls himself a pastor who hasn't studied the issue because it's. It is God's voice to all of us. So you have to know what you're teaching. You know, and I didn't. Fig I didn't figure it out until five years ago. But if I was a pastor, the standard is higher. You know, not many should be masters. So I just think it's a, it is a really important issue. And there's some, you know, some sermons where it probably wouldn't matter at all, but there's tons where it would. And so yeah. that's, that's my thought on that. I think but, that that's something, and, and I think about these things. Um, and, and for me personally, I look at it as an issue of I'm not a pastor of a church. I'm in charge of my family. It's my, it's my job to train my kids and teach them which version is right these kinds of things, what the differences are, and we'll get there at some point. Uh, but, but along the lines of what you're saying, um, even recently I heard, I, I heard a pastor who said, hey, you know, in, in Ephesians 6, 5, there is absolutely no, and I might be, it might be the wrong verse, but it, um, any, I, I want to say it's Ephesians 6, 5, where it says, wives, submit yourselves to your, to your own husbands. Um, and he said, that's not in any manuscript evidence. It, that submit yourselves, you cannot find any textual evidence that that is in any version. Uh, and the version's got it wrong. 
And basically, you're, you're saying the King James Version got it wrong. The translators got it wrong. There's no manuscript evidence for it. While that sermon was going on, I literally looked it up. And I found, I, I found one, it's in literally the oldest manuscript that we've got, P47. And then it's, it's in what I think is one of the most persuasive arguments for the preservation of the Byzantine text uh, that they're actually looking to now and studying um, um, uh, in, in studying, uh, what is it? It's the um, coherence-based genealogical method, um, where they're they're looking at the they're they're looking at all these different factors, wh whether it's church fathers, lectionaries, manuscript evidence, uh, sermons, and they're and they're they're looking at that throughout history and saying what was used throughout history. And it's what they're doing is it's showing that the Byzantine text is more than likely what is the preserved and correct text. So what I'm saying is. When we look at the old Syrian texts um, in, the, in the second and third centuries, um, there's over 10,000 versions that have a reference to Ephesians 6.5, submit yourselves. Those two words right there. So I think that's important to understand, not just from the uh, Greek textual side, but to consider the translational side as well, that yeah, this is what has been used throughout history. But before we move on, Andrew, you look like you wanted to say something, so um, yeah, you got it, man. You know, with this whole thing about doctrine not being affected, and we're all coming to the same conclusions. Again, like I've before stated, the reason why evangelicalism, I say that loosely because, you know, I'm a Baptist, I'm not a Protestant, I'm not an evangelical, I'm a Baptist. But, you know, loosely speaking, you got a problem with that, Terry? Yeah, you're an evangelical. There, I mean, you believe you believe in a gospel that's not, it's not sacramental. You're an evangelical. Okay, okay, whatever. Um so when it comes to evangelical Christianity, quote-unquote, Protestants, basically, the reason why we have been so unified around doctrine as a whole primarily, especially Baptists, is because we have had one Bible that we have used for the better part of 400 years. But now we have to, okay, so let me ask you a question. Are you saved or are you being saved? Both. Both. So, what are you being saved? How, when, when do you, when does the salvation process become complete for the soul? When I when I when I'm redeemed, when I go to heaven, I am saved and being saved. I've I've been saved from the from the the dominion of sin. I'm being saved from the the power of sin even now, and I'm going to be finally saved when I receive glorification. I mean, those it's it's true. It's true. We, we, I'm, I'm saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. So here's the thing. You have the King James Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 18. This is, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. I am saved right now. I am not being saved. My salvation is not a process. But... In the New World Translation, the NASB, the ESV, the NLT, and the NIV, all of those passages read, but, to un but unto, those, uh, unto us which are being saved. Well, are you saved or are you being saved? Yeah, and I am, I am not being saved. I am saved. Salvation is never taught in the scriptures as any type of continual process. Ever. I am saved now, my soul and then my body will be saved at the rapture. So that's the kind of doctrine 
that gets affected. That's the kind of, again, we have not seen the full blossom of the modern translations and the doctrinal implications implications that come with them yet. We just simply have not had enough time to see the, but we are beginning to see it, and it's it's coming more rapidly, uh, I believe now. Um, so I, I do want to get into some of these some of these differences in different translations, like the one that you just brought up, Andrew. Uh, but before we do, I do want to get back to the topic of inspiration. Uh, but I want to play a video, and uh, you had mentioned Sam Gip earlier. It's a video with Sam Gip, and let me get to the screen here so the audience can see it. It's it's a question when he was on the John Ankerberg show. I, I want to say that it was, I don't know, 2011 or so. It might have even been earlier than that, maybe 2001. Uh, but it's, it's, it's Wallace and White. It's a little three-minute clip. And uh, it, it's the question about where was the Bible before 1611. And then I want to get your guys' take on it if you can sit through a three-minute video. If it's going to play. My computer's too slow. Sorry, fellas. Let me refresh that. I'm going to blame this on Google Fiber. It's supposed to be like the fastest internet on the planet, but it's going kind of slow. I don't know. Maybe it's not going to work. What's the uh, What's the general tenor of the video? Um, so Wallace asks, Jam uh, not James White. He asks Sam Gibb, um, "Did we have the Word of God before 1611? Um, where was the Word of God before 1611? Um, you know, did we have a perfect Bible before 1611?" And Sam Gibb. Um, essentially, he says, you know, he gives a description about what the intention of the Bible was, what the 1611 um, purpose was for it to be a, a soldier's Bible, something that's used for the common man, and uh, one that's, you know, can be used in hand-to-hand um, -hand combat uh, on the street level, which is what the King James was for, uh, written in a language and understandable English that anyone can understand and use in spiritual combat. And they just asked him point blank. So, well, Sam, you're not answering the question. Where was the Bible before 1611? Did we have a perfect Bible? And and Sam get basically answers point blank. No, we did not have a perfect Bible before 1611. And um, and and they they pressed him a little bit, but that's where the clip ends. I, he doesn't really expand on it beyond that. I know that Sam Gip is going to be coming out with a, an answer book part two. 
um, which should be interesting to see uh, when that comes out, if he gets into that at all, um, about where the Bible was before 1611. I know he does a little bit. Uh, and, and Andrew, I know that this is going to be something that uh, that you may have a perspective on, because I think that you and Sam Gift would, would hold the same position uh, in that regard um, about inspiration and preservation. But um, there's another guy who I really respect. I really like um, to have the conversation with him on Twitter. Is His Twitter handle is at Grace and Truth. Um, he, he would hold the same position as you do. He would hold the same position as Sam Gipp does. Um, and, and I disagree with him. I've talked to him on the phone, I, I, and, and I've disagreed with him. on. The, it, I think that it comes down to, again, um, the same argument that I used for the critical Greek text. Where was the Bible before 1611? Where was preservation? Um, I, I think that it's something that we can trace throughout history and see this is the Bible. I can call it the Bible. I, and just, to, just like I can hold a King James Bible in my hand and say, this is the Word of God. I think that you could do that before 1611. And his answer was, well, it's a formulation process, a, per, a perfecting process, that there was no perfect or inerrant Bible prior to 1611. And uh, what it took was God to use the TR to perfect the Bible, to give us a text that we could get the King James Bible from, which would be an inspired or re-inspired text that is now the one world language that you have to learn English to learn the King James Bible. So um, with all of that said, I would disagree with that on so many levels. Uh, one, starting with the fact that you don't have to learn English to get the Bible. One And two, it's not just the King James Version um, that God has used throughout history within the doctrine of preservation um, that is the one settled version uh, that you have to read to get the Bible. Um, and you even mentioned it earlier, Andrew, that you know, you've got 13 different TRs, which I, I think that that number is very arguable on how accurate that, that number is. Um, the same argument could be made and, and has been made multiple times regarding the King James Version. There's five editions of the King James Version. There's actually six now. They came out with a 2016 King James Version edition. Uh, and I, that's one question I wanted to ask you, Andrew, was would you consider the 2016 King James Version um, the Bible? And does it correct the, the 1611 or the 17, uh, the 17, is it 65? Um, but I want to start with that. So we've got a lot in there to, to go with right now. Um, and, and I think you kind of gave a, a partial answer earlier, but, but what, and it's a, it's a question they get quite often. Where was the Bible before 1611? Andrew, can you answer that? I don't know specifically where the Bible was. You know, when we talk about the Bible, are we talking about a compiled copy like this that we hold in our hands? I'm just talking, so, for example, Terry gave the example, well, you're handing out Romans and John, you're just given a partial Bible, and you've chosen that you don't need the other 64. My answer would be to that, no, I'm giving the Bible, I'm just giving a portion of the Bible. Um, and I think that's what they had throughout history. They had fragments, they may have just a, you know, a chapter, they may have had um, just a book. Um, and that's what, what we've used today, is to compile those. We've compared uh, the different fragments, which, by the way, the Byzantine text... Uh, so manuscript side of the evidence, it actually has over 5,000 of the 5,700 manuscripts support the Byzantine text, which the TR, which the King James Version, which the Modern English Version, which the Geneva, all of these different versions came from. So that's something that I would, that, that's something that I would um, rebut against that and saying, well, you didn't just hand out a partial, um, a partial aspect of the Bible and you picked what you wanted, but you did hand out the Bible. You just gave them John and Romans. 
So that's what I would say is an, a good example of what they had throughout history. They had fragments of it. And I would agree wholeheartedly with that. I mean, even Sam Gipp in his answer book deals with this very thing. He talks about how, you know, there were manuscripts here, there were manuscripts, there are fragments here. It's throughout history, there has always been the Word of God preserved. But we, we act like there's always been, or some people do, that there's always been a book that we can hold in our hands throughout all of history, uh, it, or, and even in English. You know, this is the Word of God. Where was the Word of God before 1611? And what they fail to realize is our position never says that there was no Word of God before 1611. But we're talking about a compiled book in English that I would say this is the Bible. This is the perfect, inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Well, and I, I would I would correct my position. I'm sorry. I, let me. I want to chime in real quick. I would correct my position a little bit. I'm not saying that it was just in fragments, and that's how we got the King James Bible, or that's how we got the other versions that I think were preserved English versions as well. Um, what I'm saying is there are actual complete Bible manuscripts, and and you can see those throughout history as well. There were fragments, but there were also complete 66 books of the Bible manuscripts. So that's something to consider as well. No, I, I no doubt. What I'm saying, though, is that when you have the King James Bible and you have, for example, I believe that there are parts of the Geneva Bible that were inspired. No doubt preservation. Those Here's Sam Gipp describes it like this. I learned a lot of, I quote him a lot because that's where I learned a large majority of my King James you know, stance. If you, most people draw a Bible timeline straight across. But I think a more accurate way to do it is to draw like a roof, uh, a peak. The English translations prior to the King James were on an upward slope, okay? You had the Wycliffe Bible, which was translated, you know, basically word for word from Jerome's Latin Vulgate. That was the first English translation. And they progressively got better. So then the next translation... Um, gosh, it's, it's slipping my mind. There was the Whitcliffe, and then there was the Tyndale, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong about that. Anyway, TR Bible. So the slope, they're going up. It's an upward, it's an upward spiral or an upward climb. Then it pinnacles with the King James. People say, okay, well, now we want to improve on the King James. But instead of seeing this upward climb, where things are getting progressively better and better, the only thing that the modern translation movement has done is take things down. So you go up one side of the slope, there's the pinnacle with the King James, and then it goes down the other side. And I think that's the biggest, the biggest thing we're facing. The issue today is not necessarily even where was the Word of God before 1611, but the issue we're facing today is where is the Word of God now? So I think I think that I don't want to speak for Terry or Ed. So, without telling you what I think, I've done a lot of talking. Ed or Terry, do you guys want to um, have any input on that? I mean, I, I agree generally with. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, from the uh, the time the apostles you know traveled the world to spread the gospel, and, you know there was the, the Bible's been around in piecemeal form. I mean, there are still right now ten thousand real old Latin. Bibles, which predated Jerome's corrupt, false 
Vulgate did he, he use the name to try to to make it look like it was the real original Latin Vulgate. There's 10,000 copies in existence that date back to 145 AD. The Syrian Peshitta is a complete Byzantine Bible text that dates to 147 AD. There's an Italian Bible that dates to 157 AD. So even the whole oldest text argument is wrong. And if you have a, a, a full Bible version, that necessitates an earlier Greek manuscript. So that even pushes the Byzantine Greek even earlier than any of the false dates assigned to Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and Bizet and Ephraim and Alexandrinus, etc. But I mean, the, the Bible was, like I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the Badois, the Valenses, the Waldenses, you know, all throughout Europe, from Armenia all the way to Ethiopia, there, there were parts of the Bible. And it gradually, I think, um, um, our guy described it well as a basically an uphill slope, you know, until we got to 1611, where a full and complete Bible was translated by, you know, brilliant men. But the Geneva Bible was the Word of God. The Coverdale Bible was the Word of God. The Bishop's Bible was the Word of God. You know, Wycliffe's, since it was, you know, Jerome's Vulgate, I, I wouldn't call that the Word of God. But uh, most people only had very small portions of the written Word of God up until really the, the 1600s and, and beyond. So, Terry, I think, um, I, I think it's safe to say that you're an advocate for the modern critical Greek text, which would be Westcott and Hort's Greek text that Nestle Alond and the United Bible Society's text have come from and evolved from. By the way, the, the NA, it's, it's on the 28th edition right now. They're getting ready to come out with the 29th edition, uh, I believe in 2020 or 2021. Uh, the UBS is on their 5th edition. They're getting ready to go into their 6th edition. To me personally... Uh, when I ask where was the Bible before 1611, I, I think that it's something that uh, is valid to ask a modern a critical Greek text advocate, where was the Bible before 1881? So, uh, Terry, yeah. what would your question be? What would your answer be to that question? Where was the modern critical Greek text before 1881 and with West, Westcott and Horton? Yeah, you think you could play back where I said I was an advocate for that? I mean, you're, you're concluding that since I disagree with your devotion to the English Bible, to the King James Bible, that I am an advocate of something else, that I am that I'm a proponent, that I'm saying everybody should change. I haven't said that. But you're defending the, the fact I'm, that there's no doctrine changed in other Bible. So that sounds like an advocate to me. I, I don't know. I mean, are you an advocate of the NASB? That's because that's what you want to hear. No, I'm but just I'm, asking. I'm asking I'm, you straight up. What I'm saying and have been saying is I think... It's a ridiculous argument and fight to have. I'm just, but we're here having this conversation. I'm not an advocate for the critical text. I'm an advocate for sanity. I'm an advocate for not making an idol of, of an English translation. So is it insanity to say that there's a difference between the King James Version and other versions? What? Is it insane to say that there is a difference between the King James Version and other versions since you're making an argument of sanity? It's, it's, not, it's not insane. What's insane is to say the difference is as damning and horrible as you guys are making it out. I don't think anybody's saying that it's damning, I, I, but I'm just asking. The difference doesn't matter. It's like saying that um, the, your, my church is different than your church, different than, uh, than Andrew's church. Different. The differences don't mean don't make bad. Differences don't make bad every time, and so that's what I'm saying. Uh, I don't think it's a fight that you sh that we should be having. I don't think we should be disfellowshipping or disassociating from persons who use a different translation of the Bible when we agree with them. Um, I mean, so let me clarify. I, 
I don't disfellowship with people that don't use the King James Version. I go to a church that doesn't preach from the King James Version, so I don't disfellowship over that. I don't think that I've made that argument. Ed, do you disfellowship with people that don't use the King James Version? I don't, dis- I don't disfellowship in the in the sense that we can't be friends, but I can't. I could never go to a church that preached out of a uh, a modern version. I just just it's weak. I mean, I know all the. I, mean, I know you know hundreds of doctrinal changes, so I just couldn't tolerate somebody not being educated on the issue and not being a pastor, not knowing the, the changes and who the, the men are who made those changes. When you look at Westcott and Hort, I mean, there were some wicked men who didn't believe any sound doctrine, and they're the ones who created the Greek text to create the revised version. So to me, it's, uh, you know, as a lawyer, it's called gross negligence. So it'd be hard for me to respect somebody who didn't take the time to study which version and why. And I was as a 100% NIV guy. I was the hardest guy to flip to the King James. And when I flipped, I flipped hard because the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. I so I wouldn't go to church with him, but I could be friends with him. Uh, Andrew, what's your take on that, man? Do you disfellowship? Because that's something that a lot of people would say is like, hey, uh, you King James only guys, you won't even be friends with someone who uses another version. What's your take on that, man? My best friend in the world, outside of my wife and Jesus, uh, obviously. Um, We were best friends in high school. He practically lived at my house senior year of high school. Um, And we are good friends to this day. Um, he was King James, and he he flipped. He started using an ESV. Oh, it pained me, and we had very heated discussions. I mean, I'm talking about real heated. But at the end of the day, he's my best friend. Ecclesiastically, church-wise, no, never, ever, ever, ever in a million years. We don't use cards that have other versions. I mean, nothing. We 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 are 100 percent absolute purists when it comes to our use of the King James Bible and those who we fellowship with ecclesiastically. See, and I think that's something that we addressed a little bit um, earlier when I asked Terry, when I asked you if you would if you would let Steve Lawson preach in your pulpit. And you said, well, I would ask him to use the NASB, but I, I wouldn't, if someone asked me to use the NASB, I wouldn't do it. Um, so to me, I mean, is that a level of fellowship that you would break with another pastor that, you know, Hey, if you aren't going to use the King James, you're not going to preach behind my pulpit. Are you still there? I think he's frozen. Who's that? Who's that question for? That was for Andrew. you, Terry. Oh, I thought you were asking Andrew, so I wasn't really paying attention. Oh. <laughs> No, I think we, we got the answer from Andrew. He wouldn't let Steve Lawson preach in his church. Um, so I would ask you, though, um, Terry, because we were having that conversation earlier, uh, and, we're, and now we're talking about fellowship with other Christians and other churches. Would you actually let Steve Lawson preach behind your pulpit with an NASB, even if you asked him to use a King James, and he said, no, I'm not going to do it? I, that's a good question. I don't know. Okay, that's fair enough. Well, so let's wrap it up with this. I've got one last topic. There's so many more things that I wanted to get into that I'd like to get into at some point. I don't know if we can do a part two on this sometime. Uh, you guys let me know on that. That's You don't have to give an answer right now or anything. Um, but, you know, at some point I would like to talk a little bit more about Westcott and Hort, uh, about the other committees, uh, the, the Nestle Alon Committee, the United Bible, Soci- Bible Society Committees. Um, and the people that are behind those texts, whether it's the uh, whether it's Catholicism, whether it's um, you know open homosexuals, whether it's 
whether it's just out and out like Satan worshipers and necromancers, how valid are those things to consider when you're actually considering the version that came from the text that these people wrote? Um, to me, that's extremely important. I think it's something that you need to address uh, when we're talking about gross negligence and actually studying out this version. Uh, to most Christians, it is a divisive thing that it's like, well, you're ruffling feathers, you're making a big deal about something you don't need to make a big deal about. We're all Christians, we're all going to heaven. Why are you talking about these Bible versions? Like, get over it, you're not any better than me. I think that that's something, uh, as a brother in Christ, uh, or as an athlete playing with a, a teammate, I would want somebody to tell me, like, hey, you need to step your game up, you're wrong on this, you need to get better here. Uh, in Christianity, I would want my brother to strengthen me if I messed up and I was wrong on something. To me, it's no different when it comes to the Bible version issue. Let's sharpen each other, let's think and, and consider some things uh, that we maybe haven't considered before. Uh, when it comes to the Greek text that the different versions come from uh, and the people that wrote them. So um, now with that said, guys, I do want to look at some of these things that we're saying are not a big deal. This is a big deal to me, Terry. I, I know that I've talked to you about it. You don't have to give your answer uh, publicly if you don't want to. Uh, but to me, to King James advocate people, um, I would say that Isaiah 14, 12 is a big deal. Uh, when you compare it to, uh, what is it, Revelation 1, I, I can't think of... Uh, the cross reference for it, but in, in Isaiah 14, 12, it says, How art thou fallen from heaven a Lucifer, son of the morning? And uh, in every other version other than the King James Version uh, that goes that adheres to a modern critical Greek text does not have that name or title, whatever you want to call it, that name or title, Lucifer. And, and I think you lose a key cross reference to the devil. Uh, this, this is a reference to the devil, and not a reference to Jesus Christ, who is called uh, the, the morning star as opposed to the son of the morning. Um, so, let, I want to, Terry, you don't have to give your answer on that if you don't want to publicly, but Ed or Andrew, is this something that we should consider when we're looking at other Bible versions that get rid of the reference to Lucifer? Yeah, absolutely. And also the reference to him being the minister of music or having the tabrets. In him, that's also out of the new versions, which is interesting because of the effect music has had on our culture in the last 50 years. You know, that's that's only in your King James Bible, my friends. And Let me read a couple of these versions. So the NIV says, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. The NASB says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, D-A-W-N. And then the RSV says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, D-A-W-N. Uh, Andrew, what's your take on that? It, are we losing a reference to the devil there? Absolutely. You find the exact same thing in Spanish. Um, I speak a little. I speak in a Spanish to be dangerous, I guess. But the Spanish translation issue, even in Spanish, this exact same verse is destroyed. They leave out the name Lucifer. They change it to El Lucero, which means the light or a light. Yeah. Okay. Or, excuse me, uh, a star. Excuse me. Lucero means star. So, um, why is that? Why do you even find that in the Spanish translation issue? It's because if I'm the devil, I want to mask every possible reference to me that I can get. I mean, why would you take Lucifer? You ask people who the day star is. That's a reference to Jesus mm -hmm. in First Peter 1 or Second Peter 1. I yeah, can't remember which one. You're right. Second. See, I huh? misquoted it. You corrected me. I'm good with it. Yeah. 
So as a reference to 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 the day to Jesus, this you know, the morning star. That's Revelation twenty two. Why in the world would we want to take a title specifically given to Christ? And give it to the devil. Why would we? If you ask people who the day star is, who the morning star is, they may not know it's Jesus. Some, some may. But you go out in society and say, "Who's the morning star?" Uh, what in the world are you talking about? But you go out to society and say, "Who's Lucifer?" And nine times out of ten, they're going to know exactly who Lucifer is. Oh, that's the devil. So if I were the yeah. devil, I don't want to remove my name out of the Bible too. Um, so I wanted to ask you this because you mentioned uh, Spanish, uh, Spanish Bibles, and and you speak Spanish, and I know that you've ministered to Spanish-speaking people. So my question, and let me know if this is too personal. If you don't want to answer it, that's fine. Um, but do they have to learn English to have the Bible, or do you use a Spanish version that you can say is the preserved Bible in Spanish? Andrew, I don't. Well, know. There's a new, um, a good TR Spanish Bible, the Reina Valera Gomez. It came out, I think, in 2012. Yeah. I think uh, that has Lucifer, correct? Yes. Yeah, so, so I use the Reina Valera Gomez. It first okay. came out in 2004. It's gone under three. So 2004, 2008, and 2010. It is a, it is a very accurate Spanish translation, and I chose that word very carefully. I didn't say it was perfect, but it is very accurate, and it properly, and that's the one I use. It properly identifies Matthew four or excuse me Isaiah fourteen twelve. It properly says Lucifer, and I would have to check. There might be one translation other than the RVG in Spanish, the sixteen o two Purificata. That might be another one that uses Lucifer, but the RVG is the only Spanish Bible that I know of that uses the word Lucifer. Okay. Um, I, I want to go to one more, and then we, we can go through a, a few more if you want to. We're at an hour and a half right now. Uh, but, Terry, I want to ask you this question. You said that you're not losing any major doctrine in any, any, any other Bible versions compared to the King James and uh, because it's not dependent on any one verse. We, we get that. We've, we've addressed that. Um, we don't think that any doctrine is, hinges on any one verse, but we do think that it's preserved and, and uh, is cohesive and, and unitely knit throughout the entire Bible that you can see it. So um, when I'm looking at Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 25, and I, I use the King James that says, And Joseph, in parentheses, uh, knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. Uh, that's a reference to the virgin birth. I, I think that we would all agree here. In the NIV, it says this. It says, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And then in the NASB it says, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And then the RSV says, but knew her not until she had born a son. Um, so I guess I guess that um, my question is, in, in Catholicism, it, it, Catholics believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin. And uh, I think that this is something that you can actually see in other Bible versions uh, that it, it, it would be Mary's firstborn son, Jesus was her firstborn son, but the King James Version teaches that Jesus actually had other brothers and that Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Um, so what would your response be to that, Terry? Um, that maybe there is, it, to, to us, to me, I would say, hey, that might support the Catholic teaching that Mary was a perpetual virgin. She didn't have other sons. What, do you, what would you say to that? I don't, I don't have any, I don't understand what you said. Everything you said made no sense. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. So I can't, I can't, I, I don't know. I mean, it didn't make any sense. 
You said they all said he was the firstborn son, right? Uh, no, I didn't. I said, so the NIV says she gave birth to a son, She and but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. Uh, the NASB says, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. The RSV says, but knew her not until she had born a son. So I guess that would be the question is, is does that do do those versions support a perpetual virgin theory? Well, no, they don't. Because if you if you're paying attention to what you're reading, you'll see that if you want to add the cat the Catholic idea of the Immaculate Conception and the perpetual virginity of Mary does not come from a modern version or anything else. It comes from Catholic theology. It comes from Catholic theology because because that's that is one of the reasons why if you read the Martyr's Mirror. Uh, which I do not, I do not believe in celestial flesh, but the Catholics they killed Anabaptists because the Anabaptists they believed that Jesus Christ had celestial flesh that he received nothing from his mother, and if he did get something from his mother, then she couldn't have been a sinner, and so the Anabaptists said we believe Jesus Christ is the man from heaven. He was celestial flesh come down, miniaturized and put into the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Catholics killed him for that. They said that was a heretical statement. Because Catholic theology, because Jesus got his humanity from his mother, therefore she could not have been a sinner, otherwise he would be tainted as well. I mean, there's there's a lot more to it than what you're saying. Yeah, you're, I hear you. You're, you're, you're trying to make it sound bad. Oh, oh, well, maybe I am, but that's why I'm asking you. So um, let me let me look at one more. I want to I want to I, I see what your take is on this based off of what you just said about what I, what I brought up there. Is it something that I'm making it say? Is it is it am I trying to make it say something that it doesn't say? In 1 Corinthians 9.27 in the King James, it says, But I keep under my body, um, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. In the NIV, it says, I beat my body and make it my slave. In the RSV, it says, I pummel my body and subdue it. So there's, there's different religions out there that believe in uh, physical punishment of the body to bring it closer to divine presence, um, which means, what do you call that? Like, I... It's called self-flagellation. Yeah, flagellation. I, that's, see, that's the F word I was trying to come up with for you earlier. Yeah, I, I know some better F words than that. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, you know what I'm saying. A am I making it say something it doesn't say? Does that not support uh, you the are, teaching that because, you Because you yourself will say that you, you, you know, you've been working hard. You got this project you're, you're working hard on. Yeah, I've been beating myself to get it done. Nobody hears you say that and says he's after beating himself to get it done. It means you means you're driving yourself. And that's what Paul is saying there as well. He's saying, I am working to keep myself under subjection. Whatever, whenever, whatever you want to call it. Um, he's beating himself into subjection. It's not, it's not that. That's Catholic theology. Because you know the Catholics say that, you're bringing you're bringing that into it. Well, let, let, let me jump in here and say this. Fine. Because I have an NASB sitting right in front of me. Yay. And are you paying attention this time, Terry? Because you weren't paying attention last time I was talking. But First yeah. Corinthians nine twenty seven says, "But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified." And then the note next to buffet in the margin says, "Bruise." But I bruise my body and make it my slave. I've never heard anybody say, boy, I really bruised myself today out there when they were just talking metaphorically. So there's nothing metaphorical about what the NASB is trying to say. That, that, that's your opinion. Well, 
Betsy, Why Betsy, you're, 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 you're trying to say that because it says bruise, that it's not metaphorically anymore. I mean, the guy says he's beating himself and beating himself to get it done, but whipping myself to get this done. He does not want to become a castle. He doesn't want to let his flesh, his body get out of control and cause him to become disqualified for his service to the Lord. So he says, I'm buffeting myself. I keep my body under subjection. If he said I'm bruising myself, it doesn't change the fact that he's speaking metaphorically. You know, the problem here is it, it violates the spirit of Christ. It's like when in the new verses, when, it, when Paul says he wants to castrate his enemies, when in the King James, it says he wishes that they were cut off. I mean, that is a vile slander of Paul's character to put words in his mouth where he says that he would castrate his enemies. You know, I mean, that, that is not a small thing. And neither is this verse that you're bringing up here. I mean, it changes the, the tone of the Christian life and what it means to obey. You know, the whole slave thing, you know, the King James says servant, but the new version says slave, bond slave. And it's a completely different image of our relationship with Christ. I'm not his slave. I'm his servant. I, I follow him because I love him and I've chosen to follow him. I've chosen to obey the gospel that, I, that I've heard preached. I'm not his slave. I'm his servant. And so, you know, it's funny because those things and then the one with Paul, they're just complete perversions of, of Christianity and the tone of Christianity and just the, the whole, basically everything that, you know, Paul, Peter, Jesus, James, Jude, that they taught. It's much harsher, much more severe. Well, let's, let's talk about this really quick. Let me, let me say something to what he said about the slave thing. Because yeah, let's address that and then we'll go back to you, Andrew. Not the slave of Christ or his servant. Now, if you, in the Old Testament, the slave who loved his master, when he got a chance to go free, he would go back. If you if you loved his master, if you want to leave his master, you go go back. And they would, you know they bore a hole through the ear, and he was his master's for life. He was his slave. He was a slave. He belonged to his master. the The words of the New Testament are very strong. We say servant, but the word doulos and douloi and doulon those all mean slave. That's what they meant in Paul's day. It didn't mean servant. It meant that you belonged to the master. Well, you, you I, I, you've been purchased by Jesus. You be, he is your Lord. He's your master. He's your curios. He's your emperor. He's your potentate. He's your king. You belong to him. You are a servant. You are his property. You're a slave. Yeah, not his slave. We're his sons. We're sons. Sons and daughters. And it wasn't translated slave until 1881. Yeah, so all the prior right. English translations translated it servant. That's what I was going to bring up, Ed. Um, which, by the way, you can see that in any lexicon. The Greek says it's slave. It, it's the same. It's the same idea. It's not. It doesn't say just slave, but anyway. It does let, say. Let me, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Andrew. Let, let me let me jump in here because I I agree with the servant thing wholeheartedly. Um, here's the thing: the, one of the bigger ones. I mean, a huge one, even. Matthew five twenty two. Mary, do you think it is a sin to be angry with your brother? Without a cause? No. Do you think it's a sin to be angry with your brother? We've actually had this conversation before you and I. You don't remember it. But I, I, I don't know what to say. Go ahead. Well, according to the NASB, I have it right in front of me. Mm -hmm. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. 
It's very clear. Well, Jesus was angry. The Bible even says the Lord is angry with the wicked every day. Be ye angry and sin not. When you leave out those two words without cause, you are literally now saying that God is sinning and that God has commanded us to sin. See, and I would point out that Terry did say without a cause, and I, and I would say, in your defense, Terry, that's probably why you use a King James Version. You can correct me yeah, if I'm wrong, I mean, but you recognize the difference between the NSB and the King James there, that one does make Jesus a sinner in doctrine, and not just allegorizing it, but reading it literally, uh, and the other doesn't. I don't let know. Me, let, me, let me respond, because this, this, is a, this should be interesting. Do you believe the Apostle Paul wrote the actual words of God? Andrew? Uh, yes. Okay, so Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, there you have it saying all anger, everything. So that's all anger, right? Everything. No anger for anybody. But you don't understand it that way, though, do you? Because you know that there is a time to be righteously angry properly angry and not. Otherwise, you have Paul saying that anybody who's angry is a sinner, including Jesus way back there, because Jesus couldn't keep up, keep that up if he was angry. It's such an inconsistent argument. It's really not, because it's like in John 7, 8 through 10, when Jesus lies to his brothers. I, you know, I vaguely remember when I was 19 reading that and saying, wait a minute, did Jesus just lie to his brothers, saying he's not going up to the feast, and then he goes? I was going to read that right now, actually. Okay. Yeah, and it, it does matter. I mean, I feel like in, in my mind as a young kid, I thought, well, he's God. He can lie if he wants. Not realizing until 30 years later that Jesus didn't actually lie because in Revelation it says liars go in the lake of fire. So it's kind of like an inside joke with the translators that Jesus can lie. Ha ha, you know, liars go in the lake of fire. Jesus can be angry at his brother, you know, with Peter, you know, he belongs in hell. It just, I mean, some of these things are, these are not small things. And for a young person reading the Bible, like if I give out a Bible to somebody and they're reading that and they read John 7 and they say that Jesus lies to his brother, I mean, that slowly and subtly works on their perception of who Jesus is, what's a sin, what's not. I mean, these are these are massive things. That's why the King James in Luke 4, 4 says every word of God. And it's cut out of the And uh, Terry, I don't want to put you on blast. I know that we're, we are putting out, we're putting out what we would consider. Are you, I can't hear you. Were you talking? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um. I, I did. I don't want to put you on blast, so I, I feel like you're pretty defensive. Um, if, if you if you don't want to keep going in this direction, just let me know. We can go in another direction, or I, you know, we've been going for an hour and forty two minutes. We could cut it off now if you wanted to. It doesn't matter to me. Well, let me. Uh, well, hang on a second. Why? So let me just say this. Why so defensive? I mean, we all we all have. I disagree with. With these two brothers on some things, but why so defensive? Why not? Well, why? And and this is a thing. A lot of the KJV onlyists get accused of having really bad attitudes and being jerks. And I think that we are seeing. And you can never have me back on your show, Mister Gibbs. That's fine. But I think this needs absolutely addressed. We are seeing the absolute opposite of the frame that people have tried to brand KJV only us with. We're seeing the exact opposite. 
So you're getting very defensive for no reason. We're having a discussion here. You're acting like you don't even want to be here. I'm sorry. I'm just going to call it out. I just lay all 52 cards on the table face up. All right. I'm done. Um, so I want, what I wanted to look at was John 16, 16, and it, it's, it's along the lines of what Ed was, was just talking about where in the King James, it says a little while and you shall not see me. And again, a little while and you shall see me because I go to the father. And it, actually this is a different passage, but in the NIV, it, it says same passage, John 16, 16, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Uh, NASB, a little while, and you will no longer see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me. RSV, a little while, and you will see me no more, again, a little while, and you will see me. So, what, what I'm saying is Jesus, he qualified this statement by saying that he was going to the Father, a fact that was not actually mentioned in these other versions. So, to me, leaving that out isn't, isn't a small deal. Just like in Colossians 1.14, where, where it says, um, in whom we have redemption through his blood in the King James, uh, which you can I don't believe that you can be saved without the blood of Christ. I just don't believe it. I, if you don't have the blood of Christ covering your sins, you're not saved. You need the blood of Christ to cover your sins. Uh, and, and in any other version that comes from the modern, modern critical text, it says, in whom we have redemption, and it leaves out through his blood. So I believe that these two references here, one is a reference to the resurrection of Christ going back to heaven, and the doctrinal teaching that he goes to the Father and that he comes back again, and uh, that's a reference to the resurrection. But two, you've got a reference to the blood of Christ. Both of those, I think, are references to soteriology, the salvation, how one is saved. If you don't have the resurrection of Christ, if you don't have the blood of Christ, you do not have the atonement of Christ covering your sins. And if you don't have the resurrection, you do not have a gospel, a complete gospel. So that's my take on it. I think that there is a doctrinal difference between the King James Version and other versions. Now, uh, what, what a modern critical text advocate would say is that, well, it's preserved in Ephesians 1.17, and it's probably a transposition of Ephesians 1.17 into Colossians uh, 1.14, and, you know, it was, a late, it was a later edition in the 9th century, um, which is not accurate, one, if you're looking at the manuscript evidence, but two, I think that it's really not a question about, is it in Ephesians? The question is, is it what Paul wrote? Was it in Colossians, and was it preserved throughout history? So to me, those are extremely important doctrinal issues, uh, regarding salvation, but it's also a doctrinal issue to me on preservation. What is the Bible? Have we had it throughout history, and do we have it today? So um, anyone can respond to that. I think that'd be a good place to wrap up, and then I'll, I'll give a closing message, and we can go from there. If you don't want to, that's fine, too. That's important. I mean, the, the blood of Christ is important. The blood of Christ saves us. You know, the whole Old Testament... You know, the blood, the blood, the blood, Hebrews. I mean, it's critical. There's, t I mean, there's so many brilliantly subtle doctrines cleverly deleted out and changed in the, in the new version. I mean, it's it's nuts when you see them on a chart and you then you read through them. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. And for someone like us who are believers, it's not might not affect us. But for a young person reading the Bible for the first time, you don't have the repetition of. You know, Jesus didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. That's deleted two of the three times in the new version, the repentance part. Um, you know, there's Romans 8, 1 has significant change. That I wrote an article about it because it affected the life of one of my friends who felt like he was free to sin um, being saved. He, thought, he felt like he could just live how he wanted to. I mean, there's, there's so much, you know, stuff.
so many critical words and concepts deleted cleverly from the new version. You have to see it with your own eyes to believe it. You know. So I agree. Hey, Terry, um, if you wanted to throw in something, then Andrew, I'll give you the last word, and I'll go to my closing scene after that. Now, I just want to ask Ed a question. What was the problem with Romans 8? Uh, Romans 8.1. I'll read you the, little, the, the end of Romans 8.1. Actually, I wrote a long article about it. It's about repentance where it says, there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And then in the King James, and that's where it ends in the new versions, but in the King James it says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So I had a friend who I was meeting with for Bible study occasionally, and he had a situation where he was actually drinking and skinny dipping with some girls. And, you know, we, I talked about it. I said, hey, look, you know, we all have sin in our life, but that, that's sin. And he's like, man, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And I said, well, if you keep reading the verse in the King James, it says for those who walk not according to flesh, but according to spirit, not implying perfection, but implying a heart where your heart is turned away from sin to him. He goes, he goes, bro, that's legalistic. The King James, that's ridiculous. I don't read the King James. It says right here in my Bible, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I'm in Christ Jesus so I can do what I want. And so as, as crazy as that sounds, he rejected the last part of that verse and the message of the last part of that verse because it wasn't in this Bible. And maybe he would have rejected it anyway, but it clearly affected him and how he thought about the Christian life, that he was you know, basically antinomian. You can you know, do whatever you want if you're allegedly in Christ Jesus. And the reality is he wasn't in Christ Jesus, but he thought he was because of the, the way that verse is rendered in his NIV. So, well, and if you, you ask me, I think you, that that... Let even... me ask a question because I think this is a fascinating question. Andrew, do you agree with what he just said? With... The fact that he was doing those things meant he, meant he wasn't saved. Yeah. No, I don't agree with that. Because I didn't say that. I, I didn't say that he wasn't saved. I'm saying he felt he had the freedom to do what he wanted in the flesh, and like there's no. Basically, he could he could hypergress. I mean, he could do whatever he wanted, and it didn't matter. Like he didn't count the blood of Christ as something to to treasure. You know, he. So I, I don't whether he's saved or not. The Lord will judge him. Maybe he is saved. I don't know. But for him to trample on the on the cross and feel like it's no big deal and use that verse as justification, I think is ample evidence that that, that some of these little teeny subtle changes have you know affect people's lives. Well, and Terry, so, I think we could ask you the same question because with Calvinism, I think that you 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 would actually say that if you're in the flesh, that you're not saved. So, what would your response be to the same question you asked uh, Ed and Andrew? I mean, I don't think that you can determine a man's salvation based upon his works. Well, I was talking about Calvinism, because Calvinists teach that if you're in the flesh, you're not saved. Well, I think that in the flesh is a doctrinal statement out of Romans 8 referring to anybody who is lost. What's your take on that, Terry? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Okay. okay. I'm just curious because... Because Ed was saying that the modern version had led his friend to think that he could embrace Christ and a lawless life, and go and go to heaven. That's that, that's the that's the gist I got from it. And then I know that Aaron, not Aaron, Andrew, believes that he believes in the non-Christian Christian is that you can be saved, you you ask the Lord to save you, and then you may never 
serve God at, at all, but you're but you're you're saved no matter what. It's it is a. I mean, I think I think I'm I think I, th I think that's I think what I'm saying is what you believe, Andrew. If I'm not, you tell me. But that's two very different views about salvation, and Ed laid it on the back of the modern version. But if we, but that, but you guys are both King James exclusivist, and you have you come to very different views. Um, I'm not on, a King on, James on exclusivist. I don't think Ed is either. Well, I would say uh -huh. that Ed is a King James onlyist. I'm not a King James onlyist. Like it to me, but I don't know. I, I think the issue comes down to of we can have a conversation about soteriology, but I think what the issue comes down to is that is an example and it doesn't even have to be a, you know, I say consistent example for people can read the King James Bible and come to different conclusions. How much more muddy, though, does the waters become? when we begin to chop away from the word of God. Do you think, do you think that the King James 1611 is right? When in Romans chapter eight, it uses a small S almost every time for spirit and not a capital S like is in our, our newer versions, newer King James versions. I don't think it matters a lick. God never promised to preserve capitalization. He promised to preserve words. Hmm. That's interesting because the King James, um, the translators, act, it, it, when they were translating it from Greek, they didn't have the capitalization. So when they were, when some people argue that it is an act, it, it's actually an interpretation on the capitalization of capital S or lower S, which you just said, you don't think that it matters, but the translators did translate capital S's versus lowercase S's sometimes. So is that something that you would disagree with the translators on? You know, I've personally never studied that or, you know, heard that before. So I, I don't, I, if, if, if the translators think that there are places where it should be capitalized, then possibly, I've never studied the issue out. There are places, though, in the King James Bible, of course, I have no idea uh, what references they are. I've seen them, just can't remember, where I do believe it's referring to the Spirit of God and the S is not capitalized. I see. Well, Terry, did you have anything that you wanted to leave the audience with? One final thought from your perspective. I, I think that um, we we can obviously see some differences in our views. I, I you know, on the modern critical text versus the the text that King James came from, and uh, just the conversations that we've had and some of the differences in translation that we've talked about. And to to me, to Ed, and I would say Andrew. Um, we would say that there are doctrinal issues there, but um, I, I think, Terry, you would disagree with that kind of from your responses on uh, what we've had in the dialogue going back and forth on some of those things that we brought up. But I, I'd like to hear if you want to leave one final thought to the audience, what would it be? I do not think it is a litmus test for orthodoxy or person's spirituality or um, spiritual or there's, well, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't think not using the King James Bible should be held against anybody. I don't think it's, I don't think it, it's not that big of a deal. If, you could, if you're coming out the same place, it, it's not that big of a deal. And I think that's why 
that's that's what I'm trying to say is you shouldn't mark somebody off because they use use a modern version. The rhetoric, the anti, the the rhetoric that's used, sincere. If it's if it's sincere, then people who use modern versions are anathema and unwelcome, and the preachers who do so are the pawns of Satan. I, I think that's wrong. I mean, Ed, Ed said it earlier that he considered to be gross negligence that you could be a pastor and not have researched the issue and come to his conclusion. That's that's the that that's the problem. And come to his conclusion. If, if a guy does all does his due diligence, reads all that stuff and dismisses all the West Cotton Horse stuff as ad hominem and not that big of a deal. Uh, and says, okay, I, th I think the modern Bibles are okay. Ed's going to say, not only, are, not, I don't know what you would say about him, about, about him then. They're, they're just off their nuts, I guess. I'd be happy to tell you. What? I'd be happy to tell you what I, what I would say to them. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm just, I don't think that that is a good litmus test. I mean, Andrew has talked about the, the Trinity here. I've seen his videos on the Trinity. Andrew doesn't even hold the orthodox view of the Trinity. And, and so I don't, I don't see how the, the claim that the King James Bible is the arbiter of truth. And if we have that, then we're on the right footing. It, do, it doesn't wash. It doesn't wash. And if we, so I'm sure if we poked around in everybody's little uh, theological worlds, we're going to find something we, that we don't like or find abhorrent. Andrew earlier made, a, made the plea that because there was such un, uniformity amongst Baptists for all these years was because of... Uh, having the same Bible for 400 years, all you have to do is get Lumpkin's book, Baptist Confessions of Faith, and read it, and you'll see that with the with the same Bible, they came to very different conclusions uh, than Andrew comes to about soteriology, about the nature of, uh, of God, about the Trinity. So it's not the, having a King James Bible is not a mark of orthodoxy. It's not the mark of orthodoxy. That's all I got to say. Hey, um, so you, you, real, real quick here. I don't want, I want to take too much time. I, I want Ed to give his final thought on it and, and leave the audience with his final thought. But I want to ask you this, Andrew, because this is the first time I've ever heard this about you. What's, what, what's your view on the Trinity? Is it, is it messed up? Oh yeah, he's blowing complete smoke. No, it's not. There were some uh, folks who didn't like me, and uh, prior to the whole Trinity debacle. And then they disagreed with the wording that I gave in a, in a video I did on the Trinity and completely blew it out of proportion. Okay. Is, is, is Jesus God? Yes. Is Jesus the Father? Yes and no. That's, that's is, false. Is Jesus the everlasting Father? Is Jesus the everlasting Father? No. He's not? No. So Hebrews 9, 6, when he shall be called the everlasting Father, Terry... Is he the everlasting father? Jesus is not the father. Wait, then why is he called the everlasting father in Isaiah 9, 6? He's not, he's not the father. Answer me. Answer me, Terry. Why is he called the everlasting father in Isaiah 9, 6? I, I, don't, I, I don't know, but he's not the father. That's oh, not I don't know the why, don't know why the Bible calls him the everlasting father, but he's definitely not the everlasting father. All right, let's leave it at that. Hey, Ed, yeah. we're talking about the King James Version, Inspiration and Preservation. What do you want to leave the audience with on a thought on that topic? I just say I hated the King James and thought it was ridiculous. And then I went and looked at the men who put together the critical Greek text. I looked at the manuscript evidence. The scores basically five thousand seven hundred and forty to forty-five and really two. And every single 
person involved in the creation of the critical Greek text didn't believe anything orthodox. I mean, Westcott and Hoare, all the evidence about Westcott and Hoare is from their own correspondence. They were in three occult societies. They loved seances. This is their own letters that their children put together when they died. They believed in Mariolatry. They didn't believe in the Trinity. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in Noah or the flood, blah, blah, blah. And these guys put together our Bibles, and they called the Texas Receptus vile and villainous. So, I mean, even if you don't think that King James is great, if you look at the evidence for the, the critical Greek text and the versions that flow from it, I mean, it's really, it's trash. So that's what I would like to leave the people with. Andrew, what's your final word? Uh, leave the audience with a thought on the King James Version regarding inspiration and preservation. Here's my final thought on it. You have all these different translations that say all these different things. And yet we are supposed to say that all of them are the Word of God. Well, what about the places where they disagree? Which one is God's Word? And in order to determine that, you have to make the decision on what you think is God's word, making yourself the final authority. It is absolutely humanistic. It's anti-scriptures. It's anti-God. And, you know, the NASB, which is the translation that Terry says he's been using and Steve Lawson used, no wonder it's so corrupt, it's so wicked, it even demotes Jesus from deity in Psalms chapter 8, it says that Jesus was made lower than God in Psalms 8, 5. Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God. It says that you grow up to salvation in First uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse number 2. It says, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. I mean, if anybody doesn't think that those are serious issues, then they have their head in the sand. And we could go on and on and on. I mean, a laundry list of stuff that all these modern translations have in common. So um, the, you study the history of these texts, the critical texts, the Westcott and Hort texts. You study the history of those men. You study where these manuscripts came from, trash cans, the Vatican they are corrupt to the core, and um, and a person going from the King James to something else is nothing but Laodicean apostasy at its finest. All right. Hey, guys, I really think that we did exactly what we had talked about doing before we had this conversation. Um, this is obviously something that the four of us have never done before together. Um, we all have got very strong uh, positions about why we believe what we believe when it comes to the Bible version issue. Uh, but for those of you who are watching, there's a lot of things to consider, a lot of things to take seriously that you may have never considered before. Um, I would definitely urge you to look into the Bible version issue. Uh, but more importantly, I think that there's a very strong straw man argument uh, that you have to consider whether it is in fact uh, purely a Bible version issue, and is it actually a textual issue that the versions come from? Um, so I think that we can explain that a little bit further in future videos uh, for, for that I'm going to get into, um, because this channel is primarily uh, focused on um, the soteriology side of salvation uh, and the Bible version issue. So we get into different textual variant issues uh, as well as preservation issues and different Bible version comparisons. So um, that's primarily what we wanted to get into tonight. I think we did what we wanted to. Um, and, you know, there's there's some strong opinions. And, you know, 
um, there should be when it comes to this issue. So once again, Terry, Ed, Andrew, thank you guys for coming on. It was a pleasure. Um, we'll catch up soon. So thanks again. Thank you. All right. I'm going to go to the closing scene here for you guys and wrap it up. So anyways, that was another episode of Making the Hedge. Thank you for those of you who are still watching your troopers. I think that this has been a pretty good uh, pretty good episode. Maybe we'll have a part two. I don't know. I'll talk with the, uh, the gentleman that we had on tonight and see if that's something that they're interested in doing. Um, if not, that's totally fine. I understand. Um, there can be a lot of emotion in this this topic. So, uh, guys, once again, um, stay tuned uh, for what we're gonna for the next topic. I'll put up a um, a link to um, what we're gonna get into next Tuesday. But um, we are on multiple platforms now. Uh, I think there's somewhere around 15 or 20 platforms that this is being live streamed onto or stored into. Uh, we've also got an Apple Podcast. It's Making the Hedge Apologetics. So look us up there. You can find all these same episodes that if you don't want to view it on video. You can just listen to the audio. So, again, thank you guys. God bless you. And seriously, I consider consider this this topic to be something serious. Uh, and email it. Email me if you want to. Gibbs J one zero eight six at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at at the real And uh, have a good night. We'll talk to you soon.